Well, good morning, Crossing Church. How are you doing this fine day? Oh, you got to be better than that. I mean, you got up this morning and you get to live in this day. So how do you feel about this fine day? You're all right? That's so, so good. It, it, it's been, I mean, that song is an incredible song. It's just a gospel in song and love that song. All of our locations got to hear that. And by the way, I want to welcome all of our locations all around this region. So thankful for each and every one of you. And if you're inside or online, so thankful for you as well. And celebrating 17 baptisms uh, inside last week. I know there's uh, four more this week. God's just, he's just undeterred. You know, he just gets it done, doesn't he? He does such incredible, incredible things. And he's been doing incredible things this weekend at the crossing. All of our locations uh, get together for both a men's conference and a women's conference. And this was the Rise Conference this last weekend. Over a thousand women involved in that. So I need to talk to uh, all of the Uncommon guys. Uh, 800 guys. 800. They had a thousand. Come on. Come on, we can do better than that. Anyway, you know, one thing I know about those conferences is that and it's a really concentrated time where we're in God's Word together and, and we're open to God's Word. And, and in, there, there are moments in those events that are just profound, absolutely profound moments. And uh, uh, some of you may be carrying one of those moments in your heart right now because God did something in your life and it, all, and it, and it only took a moment. Now, that's really what I want to talk about today is, you know, that's what really life is. Life is just millions of moments, right? Just millions of moments. And some of those moments are really, really good. And some of those moments are really, really bad. And then some of those moments you really don't put a value on or you don't evaluate that way. You're just kind of going through them. But I have to tell you that I'm standing on this stage today, right now, because of a single moment. That moment occurred in my life in August of 1980. And I know exactly where I was. I know exactly what was going on around me. I remember it like it was yesterday. But I can tell you this. When I experienced that moment with the Lord and I walked out of that room, absolutely nothing in my life would be the same. Because that was when He called me into ministry. And I want to reflect on that today because, you know, the, Jesus is Lord of the universe. I mean, He is this incredible God over such big, huge things. But He is also the Lord of the moment. And there is incredible power in a single moment. When I think about God, maybe when you think about God, you think about his greatness and his vastness, his incomprehensible nature and his uh, incredible power. But he's more than the God of big things. He is the Lord of the smallest of things. And so is Jesus, the Lord of the smallest of things. When you hear Jesus teach and he talks about the birds of the air, and we realize that there's not a bird that falls from the sky but that he doesn't know it and record it and remember it and think about it. When he talks about the lilies of the field, I know that every single flower that blooms, he knows it. Every single 
flower that is cut or that withers, he's aware of it. And when he talks about the hairs on our heads and how he keeps count of them, he is reminding us of how he is not only the Lord of the big things, but the Lord of the small things. Last week, we heard about Jesus, the creator. We heard about Jesus, the light. We heard about him being the author of life. And this huge word, the word of God, the speech of God that brought everything into creation. And today, I want us to leave that. I want us to leave the vastness that John shared with us, trying to help us get a a foundation under us about who Jesus actually is. And I want us, together with John, the author of the book of John, to find that same power in the smallness. And we're going to see that illustrated in Jesus' love for a single person in a single moment and how that reveals both his character and his nature. Because what we're going to do is we're going to see all of that power concentrated into a single moment and what that moment does. So I'm going to give you three illustrations of that today. And the first one is in John 3, verses 1 to 3. Now, there was a Pharisee. Okay, let's stop right there. What is that? What's a Pharisee? Well, Pharisees were part of the Jewish ruling class during the time of Jesus. And there were particular Pharisees and also a group called Sadducees that together formed what was called the Sanhedrin. And they were a religious body, but also a political body. They were the government that existed under the government of Rome. Now, the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee was Pharisees believed in life after death, and they believed in the prophets of the Old Testament. Sadducees did not believe in life after death and did not ascribed to the prophets of the Old Testament. So there was a Pharisee. So we kind of know a little bit about this. A man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night. Now that's important, that he came to Jesus at night. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God was not with him. Now, now that's, that's a great line, but that's a kind of a political statement, okay? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What? Born again. Now, you and I, we understand that term, those two words as a term, Because it's in our culture. We've heard it many times before. But understand that in Jesus' culture and in Nicodemus' time, they never heard anything like that. And so this is just kind of blowing Nicodemus away. So let's get a little bit deeper into the story. First of all, Nicodemus comes at night. Now he comes at night for a reason. Because he's a member of the ruling council, and the ruling council doesn't really think much of Jesus. They don't like Jesus. Eventually, they're going to plot to kill Jesus, and he doesn't want everybody else to know that he has an honest curiosity about who Jesus is and who he might be and what he can do. And so he comes under cover of darkness because he doesn't want the other Pharisees to see what he's doing. And you hear him deliver the political line. 
just butters Jesus' bread on both sides. You know, you obviously have come from God because nobody could do these awesome things that you're doing. You know, thinking that Jesus is going to lean into him. So he delivers the political line, but then Jesus just, pow, hits him. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? Where did that come from? I mean, when someone delivers a political line like that, you're supposed to deliver one back. Like, well, you know, I've heard about you, Nicodemus, and you're part of the ruling council, and, you know, you've come a long way, man. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He just goes, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is completely thrown off balance. I mean, you can read the rest of that story, and it's like, well, how in the world am I supposed to enter into my mother's womb and be born a second time? Like, he has no idea. He's just mind blown, okay? But it is long enough for Jesus to deliver the gospel to him. And that's what being thrown off balance can do, right? All of a sudden, your defenses are like all goofed up, and you're like, what? what? I mean, you're listening, you're hearing, your heart's open. And in that moment, look what Jesus says. John 3, 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He, he is prophetically talking about his crucifixion. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then the familiar scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We use that scripture so often, but oftentimes we don't realize that it was said to a Pharisee who was trying to impress Jesus with a political line in the middle of the night. And he was just sharing that with that one guy. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's a gospel message. Many people have said John 3.16 is the gospel in one verse. I'll put it like this, just in a little catchphrase. Ready? Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. You know what I mean by that? Like everybody here, all of our locations and in this room, we've all been born once. Contrary to what your cousin said when you were young, trying to freak you out because they got you from the circus or you came from under a rock. That didn't really happen. You were actually born. We've all been born physically. But if we are only born physically, we die two times. Jesus makes that clear in the Gospels that we all die physically because it is appointed to us to die physically. But he also says we die spiritually. We are eternally separated from God. We die twice. So if we're only born once, we'll die twice. But if we're born twice, born physically for mothers and spiritually born of God, then we only die once, physically, but inherit eternal life. Hmm. What a gift. What an incredible gift Jesus gave Nicodemus in this moment. And that's all it was. It was just a moment. It was in the middle of the night. It was just a moment, but it changed everything for this man. Later in John, 
we read the narrative of Joseph of Arimathea asking for the body of Jesus after he's been cruelly crucified on a cross and they've pried the nails out of his body rather than throwing him on the trash heap of the Hinnom Valley Joseph of Arimathea asks to have his body because he had bought a tomb and had it made for himself but because of his love for Jesus he decides to give that tomb to Jesus now it's important that we read this in John because you have four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not eyewitnesses to this moment. So Luke, he doesn't become a Christian until the journeys of Paul much later and writes everything down as a compilation. Mark was a scribe for Simon Peter. So when you read the Gospel of Mark, you're actually reading Simon Peter's recollection. But Simon Peter was an apostle. And so was Matthew. The problem is, Matthew and Peter, or Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, they're not direct eyewitnesses. Do you know why? Because when Jesus was arrested, they all ran. And they weren't there when Jesus was crucified. Only one apostle was there, and that was John. So John is testifying to what he actually saw, what he actually heard, what he actually experienced. And he saw that Joseph of Arimathea, along with a friend, a guy by the name of Nicodemus, asked for Jesus' body, washed it, wrapped it, and buried it in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and rolled a stone over it. Nicodemus helped to bury my Lord. He honored my Lord. And all indications of everything that was written about Nicodemus afterwards, indicates this truth, that he took the words of Jesus seriously. He was born again. Now, you know, Nicodemus, he had a lot to live up to. And so do we. Yeah, he was a man that had a lot of priorities. He'd worked hard to get where he was. And so do we. We have some of us uh, in all of our locations right now, we have all these things that we've done in our lives. We've tried to put the right people around us, network right, say the right things, not mess those things up because we have these priorities. And sometimes if we do and we start having a relationship with Jesus, Jesus can get in the way of that. He might even threaten all that you've built in your successful life. That's why Nicodemus came at night, because Jesus could threaten everything that he built in his successful life, spending his life climbing the ladder, looking for approval. But there came a moment when Nicodemus laid it all down, and you know why? Because Jesus was Lord of a moment, his moment, and that moment came at night when Jesus said, you must be born again. Second story, uh, John chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. (laughs) He had to go. See that word right there? Well, that's just not true. You you don't have to go through Samaria. 
As a matter of fact, Jews didn't want to go through Samaria. Jews hated Samaria, and they hated Samaritans. They had actually had a racial hatred of Samaritans for over 700 years. They did not mix well. And so Jews, if they were going from the north to the south or the south to the north, they would actually take a more difficult road to get up there just so they would be able to bypass Samaria. But then you have this word. Hold on to that. Jesus had to go through Samaria. There's a moment in Samaria waiting for Jesus. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon. What time was it? Noon. Okay. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Something wrong with that, because women don't... in. Jewish times, in historical times, don't draw water at noon. They draw water in the early morning, sometimes before the sun gets up, is up, so that they can use it for their families. And yet, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water at noon, and Jesus says to her, what? Jesus says to her? Jesus talked to her? Jesus talked, I mean, a Jewish man talking to a Jewish woman, even out in public, uh, not really acceptable Talking to a Samaritan woman, not acceptable. At noon, very not acceptable. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Wow. Before we get into the substance of their conversation with each other, we have to understand just how much is wrong with this moment, okay? The first one we've already discussed, Jesus is in Samaria. So, I mean, Jews in general wouldn't do that. A Jewish rabbi, definitely not that. And that's who Jesus was. And then this woman comes at noon, and there's a reason she comes at noon. She comes at noon so that she can avoid all the other women in the town because she has a reputation, and her reputation is not a good one. Jesus brings that up in his conversation with her. She's been married five times, and the man she's living with now, she is not married to. Then Jesus speaks to her, which is wrong on all accounts. But they all speak volumes about Jesus, don't they? When you read he had to go through Samaria, that speaks volumes about Jesus. When he's there at noon and he speaks to a woman who has questionable, not questionable, a really bad reputation... And he breaks all of these taboos. This is telling you so much about Jesus. It also ought to tell you about Jesus and his relationship to you. And then he tells her, I can give you living water. And you'll never be thirsty again. And she's like, well, give me some of this water because I hate coming to this well. It's really what she says. And then they start this conversation And then Jesus just blurts out this horrible truth about her life, of the kind of woman she is, because she says she's not married, and he goes, well, that's true, you aren't, because you've been married five times, and the man you're living with, you're not married to. That would probably end a lot of conversations, right, that you were in if you said that? But that's what he says, and then she says, I can see that you're a prophet, and then she wants to talk theology. Talk theology with Jesus, that's probably not a good idea. 
because he's going to win that argument. But he gets all past all that, reveals to her that he's the Messiah. And then she has this response from this moment. Look at the response. This is 428. Then leaving her water jar. I love that. The whole reason she's there is to draw water. And suddenly, everything that was important or urgent in her life doesn't matter anymore. She doesn't even care about getting water anymore. She leaves her water jar. And the woman went back to the town and said to the people, what? She goes back to town, all the people that hate her, and she talks to the people. And this is what she says. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And they're going, that must have been a long conversation. Wow. <laughs> Woo. Because they knew her. Could this be the Messiah? Her story is her story. Her past is her past. But the difference is, she's not ashamed anymore. You see that? Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Yeah, you know it. So does he. It was just a moment. Just a moment in her life, but it made all the difference. Changed everything. And when I look at her and I apply her to our lives today, unlike Nicodemus who had a lot to live up to, she had a lot to live down to. Would that describe you today? That you have a lot to live down to? Because you see, we all have a past, don't we? Are there people who won't let you rise up past, uh, uh, against your past? Like that, that how, what the past can do, how it can weigh you down, how others can use it to put you down, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, like oh, really? I've heard people say, that guy won't come to If that guy came to church, the whole place would fall in. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, because it's the past weighing a person down. She had a lot to live down to but Jesus has the ability to change the nature of your past and what had been a tragedy turns into a testimony and that's why she said come and see a man that told me everything I ever did how would you like it if somebody goes let me tell you everything that you did uh, everybody check this out let me tell you everything that you did I'll, let's let everybody know that She's not ashamed. Go ahead. Because it changed the nature of her past. And Jesus can do the same, and he can do it in a moment. Third story, John chapter 5. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. And which is surrounded by five color, covered colonnades. Sounds really pretty, doesn't it? Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And they waited for the moving of the waters. Which, by the way, was a superstition. In verse 4, we actually have a verse. This is one of those rare verses in the Bible that is not recorded in the original manuscripts of the New Testament. We see this like in the 11th century. And I think it's interesting what it's talking about because it's actually talking about this legend of the Pool of Bethesda. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters and the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease 
they had. At least that was the superstition at the time. And one was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him the dumbest question in the Bible. Do you want to get well? No, I just like the view. I just kind of like it here, you know. It's, it's you know, got a nice breeze over the water. No, no. What does this story tell you? That Jesus has the power to reverse the irreversible. And he has the power to reverse the irreversible in a single moment. How long had this man been here? 38 years. Let's say that something happened to him when he was 12. How many of you are here, here at one of our locations right now and you're 50 years old or older? I mean, this would define your whole life, right? This is his life. And it's by the Sheep Gate. So we read that a little while ago. Well, the Sheep Gate is on the northern part of the Temple Mount area. And it was called the Sheep Gate because it's where the sheep would come in. They'd be herded into the Temple Mount area for sacrifice. But if you've ever been to Israel, it's, it's you know where they, where they shepherd the sheep, where they pasture the sheep. It's dirty, really dirty. So I want you to think about dirty sheep coming into the sheep gate, being washed out of the waters of the pool of Bethesda. What would that smell like? Some of you guys just can't get past the smell of your dog when you wash the dog. Imagine what it's like when thousands of sheep being brought in for sacrifice are being washed and what that would smell like. What a dirty, smelly place. So then it just doesn't make sense. Why would people who are sick, blind, lame, paralyzed, why would they be there? Well, the reason that they were there is because of this superstition. And the superstition was uh, partly Greek and partly pagan because uh, it was called, there was a temple to Asclepius there who's like the, the father of medicine. And, and it was, there was also a temple to Fortuna who was the goddess of good fortune. So you put like medicine and good fortune together and you can see that there was this superstition that kind of grew up out of that. Like if you could be the lucky one that gets first in the pool, then you win the prize, you get healed. The Jews would put the infirmed there because of a belief that they had, kind of like karma. They believed that if you had a really... Uh, a bad infirmity in your life, that it wasn't by accident, that it wasn't random, that that was God either punishing you or punishing your parents for what they had done. And that is why you were there. So you were actually getting what you deserved. So they would uh, consciously put sick people away from them. So you wouldn't see Pharisees or Sadducees or priests or Jewish religious leaders anywhere around the pool of Bethesda. You wouldn't see that. So this man, for 38 years, has been surrounded by sick people, smelling the stench of dirty sheep, never able to get into the water, 
and he's just invisible. He's just invisible. But he's not invisible to Jesus. And I want you to see this moment. Because while no other rabbi would ever have gone to the pool of Bethesda, Jesus is there. Jesus is there to be Lord of a moment. Of all the places that Jesus could be, he picked there. That stinky, smelly place with sick people. He picked there. He picked this man, and he picked this moment. Now the man, he put his faith in the water. He didn't have any faith in Jesus. He put his faith in the water. He put his faith in the superstition. But for all of his faith in the water and all of his faith in the superstition, none of that had ever helped him. This man had no faith at all in Jesus. He had no expectation of Jesus. Nothing. All he wanted was to answer that simple question that Jesus said. He wanted to get well. And this was his moment. Look at John 5, 8-13. to Then Jesus said to him, Get up. You know what? Jesus needs to say that to some of you today. He needs to say, hey, get up. What are you doing? Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. Now, when Jesus cures you, he doesn't cure you like this. This guy could probably put moves on. Like dance moves. Because when Jesus cures you, he cures you. Hear what I'm saying? He was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Rolled that sucker up, put it under his arm. Started heading to wherever was going to be home, right? Check this out. Check out this the Jewish religious leader thing. And try not to think about us. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath, a holy day, Saturday, from the fourth commandment of the Old Testament. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, who never even noticed him before, who never took care of him, who didn't love him, who didn't think a thing about him, said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Okay. But he replied... The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. I'm just, I, I'm just doing what the guy said. I, boy, if we could just get that in our heads. When Jesus tells you, just do what he says. Why do you argue with him? Why do you want to come up with an excuse or rationalize? Just do what he says. That's what this guy did. He just did what he said. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? We're going to go get that guy. The man, the man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. I love this story. I love this story because it's showing you that what Jesus does to a person who doesn't have faith. Well, maybe didn't have faith. He just didn't have faith in Jesus. Had faith in all the wrong things. And there's still Jesus right there. Now, I don't think any of you are going to argue with me. This man really wasn't living at all. And I wonder if some of us feel the same way, like we're not really living at all. Like maybe to everybody else, we try to put on a front, like everything's okay, but it is not okay. That maybe it's not a physical infirmity, but there's something that we're dealing with, and we're just not okay. And sometimes that makes us feel like we're worthless, 
like we're invisible, like we're lost in a place, we feel powerless to reverse our situation. But Jesus specializes in reversing the irreversible, and he does it in a moment. I don't know which story you might be connecting with today. Maybe you're connecting on some level with all three. Maybe you're trying to kind of live that life with one foot in the world and one foot spiritually and you're kind of trying to be like Nicodemus but you're in a compromise because you have a lot to live up to. Maybe you're dealing with a past that has you weighed down and broken because you have a lot to live down to and people won't let you get past it your past, or maybe you just feel invisible. Like you don't even matter and you're not even there. But I think you relate to at least one of them. I know I do. What I really want you to see and what I want you to hear today is this. That even though we serve a God who is a God of the universe and even beyond that, all things that are and things we don't even begin to understand. He is a God of the smallest of things and Jesus is the Lord of the smallest of things. And when you sometimes think of yourself as being so insignificant in such a vast universe, nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to Jesus. Because you are so significant to Him. And even though this moment might pass by you and it go virtually unnoticed, this moment means all the world to Him. And you cannot promise Him what you're going to do with the next one or the one after that or the one a month from now or a year from now or a decade from now. But you can do something about this one. The one you're in right now. And I wonder. If you'll let the power of Jesus be displayed. As you give this moment. Over to him. We're moving to a time of decision. So, so what are we looking at here right now? What are you looking at right now? Do you know there's echoes of conversations going on in your head right now? I know there is, because there are in mine. Echoes of conversations. Yeah, you got a lot of things to work out, Jerry. There's a lot of things that you need to kind of wrestle with and kind of work through. Then maybe, then maybe you can talk about this. You know, there's... Yeah, I, I, you know, Jesus loves other people, and, and maybe... Maybe if I worked hard enough, I could get Jesus to like me, but maybe not right now. I mean, love me, definitely not. Like me, eh, I don't think. You know, all of this. All, now, I want you to know that that isn't you speaking to you. That there's an evil spiritual world around us, and the demons never stop working on us, trying to talk us out of the simple truth that Jesus loves us enough to die for us. And he is not willing to let us go. And even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. That we are children of God only through Jesus Christ. And he paid our debt to set us free. And that's the simple truth. 
And I'm telling you, even though you can hear the echoes of those voices as you come into this room, I can tell you that God has His angels stationed around this room right now. And He's saying, nobody gets in here except my Son. And Jesus is walking in the aisles right now. And He's looking at you. And He's asking you a simple question. What some people would say is a stupid question. Do you want to get well? Some of you have been paralyzed by this pool for longer than 38 years, looking pathetic because you're trying to put your faith in some water or into some superstition that's not going to do you any good at all. But you keep trying to do it on your own, and it isn't going to work. But today is a day where Jesus has walked by in this pathetic place we call a church full of sinners, and he says, do you want to get well? And today is the day you can say, yeah, I do. You can't guarantee him any moments coming up, but you can give him this one right now. And there's going to be somebody standing right over there by that baptistry that would love nothing greater than to share with you the greatest gift of the gospel. You can make a hole in that water in a baptistry. And I've heard people say that when you buy a boat, it just makes a hole in the water that you throw money into. Have you ever heard that? But when you make a hole in that water, you keep reaching in and you keep drawing the blessings out of it. If you don't know Jesus, come to know him today. Don't let everybody else get the blessing. You get the blessing. You're here today and maybe you've made that decision. You have that relationship with Jesus Christ and that's great. But the burdens are weighing you down. They're weighing you down. The scripture says, Jesus says these words, Come to me, all you that labor. And are weighted down, heavily laden, he says. And I'll give you a rest. You know, when people come up here, that's why they do. You see this front full of people? They're getting down low. So that they can let go of their burden, whatever that burden is. And let me just end with this. When Jesus was at the pool and he told the man, get up. Do you really think that that man was way over here and Jesus was way over here and he goes, hey, get up. Or do you think Jesus was here and the guy was right there and he said, get up. You come up here and you lay your burden down. And you'll feel the hands of Jesus lifting you up. Scripture says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And He will lift you up. Would you stand with me? In Jesus' name, Heavenly Father, I pray that we as 
your children would come to you. And if today is the first day, that first moment, that Father, take that moment so when we walk out of this place, we don't walk alone and we never walk alone again. That you're with us. That Father, if we are believers in you, but we're carrying burdens, that we walk out lighter and more joyful because you've taken that burden from us. Father, now, come see your children. Jesus, minister to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.